everyone, my name is Maida. And I'm Dina. And welcome back to part two of our conversation with Dr. Wasserman. The ethical legend himself. Indeed. If you haven't already checked out part one, give that a listen. Yeah, so this part of our conversation is going to focus more on who young Jason Wasserman was and some of the stories from his early high school and college years and then talk about how he found his way into medical ethics and what he hopes his future will look like. So hope you enjoy. I think just in our conversation, I've heard you talk about how you've made these like little acts of rebellion against whatever is considered the status quo, even with just sending your daughter. Was that something that was prevalent growing up as well? I think a little bit, yeah. I don't know why. We lived just outside of D.C. when I was really young. and um, (laughs) Yeah, we lived in Winchester, Virginia. So not just outside of D.C., but... Yeah, no. (laughs) But it was close enough to where, like, you know, we would go into D.C. a lot. and um, So I don't know. I guess I I had a little bit of a fascination with politics early on. So I was really super fascinated with John F. Kennedy when I was younger. And I could, like, name all the presidents in order when I was three or four. Um, I was just really interested in that. Then, you know, I think I already mentioned, like, sort of interested in social issues. I think, so So maybe I think it's always been there, but um, I think also when I got into high school, I kind of got into a little bit more, like, social, socially conscious kinds of things. And so I ended up being pretty heavily involved in a kind of DIY punk rock music scene. And I did a, high yes. school, I did, <laughs> did a, a fanzine in high school and then ended up doing a record sort of distro and um put out a few records wait where's your music at can we talk to to it but um and then and then a friend of mine and i um actually opened a a music venue in um birmingham alabama where i lived at the time and uh we actually had like you know did shows for several years and all that so i think like you know and, and again i was in a couple bands and we toured a little bit but I think what I took away from all of that ultimately that's related to, to career is just a sense of like, just doing the things that I wanted to do, you know? So like the whole, you know, ethos of that entire genre is, was, it was built around not waiting for some sort of corporate, you know, record company to come and say, Oh, you guys can be a band now and you can put out a record. It was just putting it out yourselves and, and right. buying a van and going on tour and, and, it was an awesome time, but also like, I think probably as influential as anything I ever did in college or graduate school, because it just, I think it instilled in not just me, like all of my friends from that, that time are all doing things like this. It just mm-hmm. like, this is sort of entrepreneurial spirit in a way, like, you know, well, let's just do this. Right. And so I don't know, mm-hmm. just kind of always had that attitude. It's, it's actually a deficit in some ways because sometimes I've gotten grant funding for things for you know, had to put a grant application together. And I'm just like, I'm so used to doing things myself with no money. My attitude is, oh, we don't need money for that. We can do this here and yeah, we can do yeah. that. And like, how do we just go ahead and do it? So mm-hmm. I think that that's been, it's been influential. I've seen academics struggle without any of that, that spirit because they are constantly waiting to get a grant before they do this research or they're constantly waiting, you know, for this to happen before they start this paper or project. I think, I think there's something to be said for just doing it yourself. 
Yeah, us ordering a mic off of Amazon and being like, we're podcasters. I think that's, that speaks to exactly like how this project came about. We yeah. were just like, we don't know how to, we don't know the first thing about podcasting. We yeah. don't know how to do any of this. We're just gonna, we're just gonna order a mic and it, we're gonna be podcasters. But now we know you had a whole music career before you were our ethics professor. Yeah, I'm not sure so. I'd call it a career. But... That's fine. You, you toured. How many cities did you guys like visit? We would just go every summer. Um, and we would typically stay gone for like, just like three weeks. We'd go up and we would always go up to Massachusetts or Maine, like kind of work our way up and then back down to the, uh, the Midwest. Mm. But yeah, it was a blast. Did you play like an instrument? Were you the lead singer? Like what was your I role? I sang, yeah. I can't play. You I sang, no, Dr. <laughs> I have no rhythm whatsoever. <laughs> I, I had no business being in a band. I was with people that were, that tolerated me. But I had good organizational skills. So like I was the one that bought the van and I was the one that booked the tours for the most part and all that. So I tried to pull my weight that way. Wow. That's awesome. Did you guys have like a fan crew that like knew you were coming every summer? You know, we kind of got that like right on our last tour. We started seeing some of that just a little bit. And I mean, like we, we used to laugh because people like when you tell them like, oh, we're going on tour, they go, oh man, that must be great. Like it is, but not in the ways that you think. Like we never stayed in a hotel. We would sleep in the van or yeah. like we'd sleep in a rest area or, you know, it was rough living in a lot of ways. Like it wasn't what people usually think of. You know, we, one time we ran into these like pretty young kids at a mall in Boston and they're like, oh my God, you guys are on tour. Can we see your bus? And we're just like, ha. <laughs> like a 15 year old Dodge Ram. Um, and we just had to replace the alternator on it. So now we have zero money. Um, but yeah, but I mean, it was, it was great. But yeah, I mean, like on our last tour, there were just, you know, we would, a handful of people that would show up actually just to see our band. Like, so that wow. was kind of like, Are you still in touch with those guys? The person that I opened the venue with is like still my best friend. We talk every day. Is the venue still open? Oh, no. Oh, man. <laughs> However, he, um, he actually owns two restaurants and bars. You know, he kind of kept going with owning venues. So did you grow up in, in the South in Alabama or did you go, just go to school there? No, I, um, I moved there in high school. So I was born outside of D.C. and then we lived in South Carolina and then moved to Birmingham, Alabama. And I, I quit college at one point and moved to Atlanta and then moved back, finished college. Can we talk about that time? What led to quitting college? What did you do in Atlanta? Yeah, so when I went to college, I didn't really have any idea of, of what I wanted. To, I mean, I knew what I wanted to do, but it didn't seem like a career path. So I knew I was interested in philosophy from day one, mm -hmm. um, because mainly because of doing debate in high school. But, you know, it was, a kind of, it was kind of demoralizing to hear over and over again how, you know, you couldn't really make a career out of that. And that's pretty much what everybody told mm -hmm. me. I smile a couple times a week thinking about how I'm proving them wrong. <laughs> uh, but... I mean, that was the, the message you got everywhere. And I don't mean just from like my parents who, you know, probably didn't foresee much of a career in it. Um, but I mean, even like my academic advisor in philosophy was like really in some ways discouraging because I mean, I can remember I, was, I said, what do people do with degrees in philosophy? And he's like, well, we have one graduate who opened a pool supply company. And, um, oh my God, what am I doing? So I really didn't have a sense of purpose. I just knew that's all I was interested in. And that, that felt very demoralizing in a way. It's like, I'm, the only thing I'm interested in is there's no point in it, you know? Um, so I think that was the backdrop. And then um, we had just closed our our venue and I just 
quit uh, the first band I was in and I just kind of had it. And so I just moved to Atlanta and I had a lot of friends there and guy I knew had a, a room in his house that, and I just, I just literally moved over there and I got a job. I was, um, I got a, two jobs. One was at Smoothie King. Later on, I got a job at Temp Agency there. And so this is how I came back. Um, and so I was working at this temp agency and I, they had me working at a company that shipped um, like blood products and blood testing kits mm -hmm. and stuff. And I was literally working over a conveyor belt all day. It was the kind of place where like you got a 15 minute break in the morning, a half hour for lunch and a 15. I mean, there was a whistle, you know, it was. And so we were working over this conveyor belt and the testing kits would come down the line and I had my piece of my vial that I was supposed to put in them. There was a carton that would come down. You had to pick up the vial, see if the, the tip was broken make sure the cap was tight and stick it in the carton. And I mean, you just do this all day. Yeah. So we would sit around and talk because there was someone right across. And so this woman was right across from me, you know, really nice. And she, you know, asked me about myself and so forth. And as we were talking, you know, brought up that I said, yeah, you know, I was in college. I'm going to go back. And she goes, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm going to go back too. And she had been working there eight years. No. And I was just like, I mean, I almost cried right then. It's just mm -hmm. like, oh my God, I've got to get back in college. I don't, even if, even if for no other reason yeah. than to complete a degree. And so, so I did that and I kind of came back with a renewed emphasis on at least doing it well. I still didn't know what was going to come of it. And then also what happened was as I, I got kind of towards the end, as I got like towards the end of my junior year of college, I went to an, an advisor in the philosophy department. And he had been really encouraging of me early because I had done really well in his class. And like I had, I had told him I was interested in graduate school. And he was like, oh, he looked at my grades, which were not great. And, and he was like really negative. And he was like, oh, if you even want to think about graduate school, you're going to have to get straight A's for like at least a year. And so partly out of just having had the experience in Atlanta and then partly out of a sort of out of a revenge, mm -hmm. I actually just was like, I'm going to get straight A's. Yes. So I just got straight A's for like two straight years. And then I wrote him and I said, Hey, last time we talked, you said I'd have to get straight A's for at least a year to get into mm -hmm. grad school. Well, I got straight A's for two years and I want you to write me a letter of recommendation. And he did. That's incredible. Yeah. <laughs> That's how you come at him. Yeah. Yeah. So at what point did you know that you wanted to pursue grad school and why within the discipline that you chose? I guess it was probably like a year into grad school that I knew <laughs> okay. I wanted to pursue grad school. Um, you know, I, students sometimes ask, like, how did you choose, like, medical sociology? Yeah, or, yeah. Yeah, um, and I always preface this by saying, like, you don't want to make your choices like I know mine. Um, I, I, all I knew is I didn't want to get whatever job was coming to me with a bachelor's in philosophy, you know. And so I was like, you know what, I'm going to go to grad school on something. Mm -hmm. And I thought I might be able to get funding. So, and, and that's what happened. So, I kind of chose medical sociology a little bit deliberately. I happened to take a um, sociology course my senior year. I had taken an intro course like in my sophomore year or something like that. I can literally remember one thing from that course. Like what, I don't mean like one fact either. I mean like one moment of that entire course. Like I'm not sure I went very often. <laughs> I may have slept through most of it. Um, the professor was amazing. She was a really sweet woman named Becky Trigg. She was really great. Um, it wasn't her fault. I just was a different place in my life but I took a I took a upper division sociology course and I liked it quite a bit and then I was kind of looking around for something in the medical space because I really liked medical ethics but I was trying to get out of philosophy a little bit because I was worried that I wouldn't get a job mm -hmm. and I was looking at these public policy programs like health health administration stuff so then I kind of came on um, sociology and, and specifically 
at UAB, they had a medical sociology PhD program. So it's the only program in the country to this day that officially concentrates in medical sociology. There's, there's a lot of programs that are strong in MedSoc, but this is the only one that gives a degree in medical sociology. And it kind of occurred to me that that would probably be, you know, an area where it could be a little bit more practical and employable, but it also I could bring over the theoretical stuff that I was mostly interested in. So yeah, I just kind of pursued that. And my transcript was odd looking because I had like a 1.4 GPA my freshman year, I think. I was on academic probation, et cetera. Um, but then I had straight A's my last two years. Yeah. Um, I had pretty decent letters of recommendation, um, which carried a lot of weight um, at that university, especially. And so I got in, Jeffrey Clare was the graduate director of the medical sociology program. And we had a kind of instant rapport. Uh, I think he really liked me. He really liked my philosophy background. So, but when I went into the medical sociology program, I, I probably couldn't have defined medical sociology for you and ended up just being a great fit. He was, a, he was a, as I mentioned, an amazing mentor in all sorts of ways, but like right off the bat, as a research, as research assistants, my, like my colleagues, other graduate students, and this is typical, you know, they were chasing down library books and making copies and et cetera. And I walked into Jeffrey's office for our first meeting after being assigned to him as a research assistant. He said, all right, here's what I want you to do. He's like, I want you to work on your own work. I want you to work towards publications. I want you to work towards developing a research program. That's what you're going to do with your time. He's like, but since you don't have anything happening right now, this semester, what I want you to do is, for your 20 hours a week that we're paying you for is think about the question, why is sociology failing? And so that's what he assigned me to do. And uh, he never made me chase a citation and make a copy or like he never, he just didn't treat me that way. He treated me like a colleague from the very first day. And he mm -hmm. took my research time, even that they were paying me for and used it for my own development. And, and, you know, he told me I had to pay that forward, you know, later on. So when I had graduate students, when I was at Texas Tech, um, I also never made them do any of that stuff. Actually, they were teaching assistants there, but I never made them grade my papers or I instead would have them, I would sit down with them and say, what do you want right. to do with your time here? You know, and if they're interested in teaching at some point, I would let them take a week of the course and develop curriculum and teach it and, you know, just figure out what they wanted to do. So, so yeah, that was an important formative experience. And that's how I ended up in medical sociology. I kind of, I just kind of fell into it ass backwards <laughs> yeah. and it just ended up being a good fit. And I ended up getting lucky a couple of times along the way and, and meeting up with people that were just great people and that, uh, that I meshed with. Um, now I say that you don't want to make decisions like that, but then at the same time, I think there's a little bit too, there's a little bit of, um, it's not just random luck, right? I think there was a sociologist named Charles Bosk that gave a talk at MSU mm -hmm. and he talked about this, but it's, but it's basically like, you're not really falling into it. You're like responding in, you know, iteratively to all these things that are happening to you over time. So there's probably some of that in there too. So. I think it goes back to this idea of what you were saying before about like paying attention to like what's happening around you and then like hearing the world talk back yeah. to you and then moving forward and responding forward with that. So yeah. even though you may not have called it intuition, maybe it, it almost was. Yeah. And just kind of, I think also just, it, and this goes to intuition as well, like just being committed to like, I'm not doing that, you know, yeah. I'm like whatever I'm going to do, I'm not doing that. And so like, if you, if you look out at the world, you resist enough things, you're left with things that are at least, if not your dream, they're, they're like at least acceptably closer to it. Mm -hmm. And then you move forward. I try to tell people that too. Like when, when students ask me, 
you know, about those types of life questions, you know, like, you know, picking a residency or something like that, you know, people act like people must make mistake because they think that these big decisions are the key things that define like whether we're going to be happy with our lives right. or not. Like if I, if I don't pick the right residency, then, you know, that's, that's the thing, picking that residency and matching, that's the big thing. And it's, it's really not because I mean, it is a big moment and you, you know, you want to get close, but those kinds of things, you know, are really more like sailing a boat than driving a car. Like when you drive a car, you just drive right into the space. When you sail a boat at a point on the horizon, you go towards it. And then as you get closer, you realize you're off and you pull back, mm-hmm. right? So I think it's, it's more like that. So you pick something that yeah. you think is the closest, but then what's really important is that along the way, you keep pulling it back where wherever it is wherever you you don't want to be so i think med social was as close as i could see on the horizon at that point but then over time you know it's just been a matter of pulling it back and that's how i ended up now doing mostly bioethics and not much medical sociology at all i think it's fascinating that you ended like ended up with us at ouwb because Mm -hmm. i think a lot of society and a lot of, especially within the medical field, is very much regimented in, I mean, we've had discussions where we felt like we are constantly put in these boxes that we don't want to be in, and, yeah. and we're, we're told that you have to hit this benchmark, and, and we don't really find value within those benchmarks, and mm-hmm. I, I think we're so incredibly lucky to have you. Um, I'm just curious, your experience, like, working with medical students Mm -hmm. now as a professor, like how do you navigate building the curriculum for like MHCB? Like what were things that stood out to you as, as being really important or things that maybe you wish you could have included? I'm pretty proud of the curriculum the way it is. Things that I would like to do more of, but that I don't think actually fit under MHCB proper um, would be more of that kind of self-introspective introspection. And, you know, I know some of that's done in prison, but you know, I, I like having those conversations with students, mm-hmm. um, and I don't, I don't have them that often. I don't think we have them within MHCB quite enough. Um, I try to introduce a little bit of it, like the, you know, the activity about thinking about, you know, clinical artistry mm-hmm. and yeah. the internalization mm-hmm. of, of things like, you know, the, with the jazz piano um, reading and all that, that. But like, you know, so try to introduce some of that stuff, but we're moving so fast through topics in the first year, because there's so much to cover and so little time comparatively. Um, you know, I would say that I'd like more time because I could do more with it. But at the same time, we have more contact hours in ethics and humanities than anywhere in the country. So I can't, it, feel, it would feel greedy to say I want more time. But I, if I could do things with it that I would enjoy. Do you have a good sense of like a work-life balance now that you're kind of set in, in your career? I'm not a big believer in work-life balance. Mm. Um, it's a very unpopular thing to say these days. Mm-hmm. And that's not, so what I mean by that though, is not that I don't recognize that people psychologically need relief from the stressors of their jobs. Mm-hmm. But what I find off-putting about the entire sentiment is that it presumes that um, there's like me and then there's my work. And it just, to me, smacks of this entire notion of work that is like, you know, this sort of like, labor for others that I just have to do to make mm-hmm. my way in the world and it's not connected to who I am and not what I want to be doing. Interesting. And so I really think like if we reorient ourselves around the notion of a life's work, then we obviate the real need for a work-life balance. What does that mean? Like, and yeah. So to me, like, I don't feel like I'm leaving life to go to work. 
I feel like work is, and I care about my work. I think it's important and, you know, maybe that's just ego, but I, I, you know, I think that the things that we publish, um, especially as it relates to like the care of vulnerable patients, I think that stuff's important. I think teaching Mm -hmm. uh, future physicians about ethics and humanism is important. And it, I don't feel like I'm leaving something of myself behind when I go to work. In fact, I feel like in many ways, most myself or even more myself in those spaces and so I don't resent it. Not to say that I don't recognize the need for time off to let my brain reset or, you know, to, to stave off burnout. And, you know, I've been burned out. I also recognize that, though that, that some of that is privilege as well. I know not everybody has the privilege of being able to define their, what they do for a living as a life's work. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, I think some of that is inevitable. And so, um, you know, just people are, have different opportunities. I think also some of it though is, is cultural and that we could do a lot more with even, you know, with all forms of work in society to make them more um, creative and, and humanistic um, so that they engage people better. Um, and, you know, cause when I, when I talk that way about work, somebody says, well, you always have to have garbage men. It's like, yeah, but you don't always have to treat garbage men as slave labor following dictates. You could, you can imagine a way in which you know, those kinds of, of occupations might be made more creative. And, you know, there's a lot of work on that, you know, using game, uh, gaming theory and all kinds of things to stimulate the humanistic impulses and even things that seem rote and ordinary. But, you know, that's a little bit of a digression. I just, I guess I just don't believe in work and life as separate things. I think this like sense of productivity and the way that it's defined in culture makes us feel like, well, we're, we're not working in a certain career or working in a certain way, then we're not being productive. It's like outcome-based in an external way rather than maybe an internal way. I think you could still be productive without fitting a role of like what your career is supposed to be. I think working on yourself and working on having like other priorities are just as productive. Yeah. yeah. Well, and part of the problem is that um, we live in this materialist society where, you know, the only things that are, that count in terms of productivity have to be measurable. Mm-hmm. And things that, the only things that are measurable are, are, are sort of tangible. So, you know, I, I, it's a privilege in academia to be able to say, you know, my accomplishment today was that I figured out in my head a problem that I was working on or a new idea. You know, I figured out, I, I thought up a new idea for a manuscript, right? But, you know, in most venues in our economy, that does not pay. It is, mm-hmm. So it's mm-hmm. not valued. I think that's problematic across the board. I think that people in all kinds of different occupations should be engaged in thought work and paid for it um, at, at every at every level and in every conceivable form of work um, mm-hmm. should be engaged in partly in thought work. But yeah, I think you're right. And I, and that, that invades sort of everything, right? Like, you know, in academia, we're, we're all measured in that way. You know, I can't, at the end of the year, I can't simply report thoughts that I've had. I have to report actual publications mm-hmm. and all the better if they're high impact and even better if it's, if there's grant dollars. Does that ever like eat away at you? It doesn't bother me. It's just, I mean, it doesn't bother me in a personal way. Um, but it bothers me as like a, mm-hmm. a member of a society that I think is deeply flawed in that way. You talked about, you know, your work being a life's work. And I, I understand that that's something that's important to you. What are some other priorities that you have in your life? And 
have they changed over time and where is your head at with that now? Yeah. Um, well, I mean, obviously my kids are a big one. Um, in some ways I look at my kids as a, as another sort of sociological project. <laughs> so you do over intellectualize. <laughs> right. Yeah. Well, I mean, but that's not to say that I'm like experimenting on them or but like, you know, I mean, I think that like good, good um, academic work is this like creative endeavor where you cultivate these sort of concepts and, and you grow them and they're dynamic and, and I mean, that's really what people are too, right? They're these, you know, these living, growing concepts, right? Of themselves. But I mean, so I see my, my yeah. kid, my kids in that, that way as well, right? And it's been fascinating to watch them kind of be born and grow. And um, I love having kind of conversations with them about, about, you know, different things that they're seeing and experiencing. Mm -hmm. Uh, trying to give them advice. Um, Does that not terrify you? I'm like terrified to be responsible for another human being. <laughs> yeah, it, um, that part doesn't terrify me. It terrifies me like, uh, you know, like since I've been, since like about 38, I'm 42 now. Um, I've had, I've, I've had this really like increased amount of death anxiety. Um, it's not like paralyzing or anything, mm -hmm. but I've just found myself like I can't watch TV shows anymore that have someone with kids dying in it and stuff. I just like, I'm, I feel it's just tremendously responsible for that. And like, um, so, so there's, there is all that pressure. Um, so a couple of things, like one is that as a sociologist, I never had a real healthy respect for genetic predispositions until I had kids. <laughs> now I do. Um, because I think both my kids had personalities from day one that were like kind of baked in. Um, so there's that, but, the other thing is, I mean, I think I'm generally a positive influence. And then, you know, the other thing, I don't think a lot of it is predictable and controllable. I think parents, especially today, and it drives people crazy. I see it just eat away at, um, like, the, the amount of anxiety and stress in parenting right now is just unbelievable. I, I just, I'm not sure that it's healthy. Um, but, but then also, I just feel like they're going to, they're responding to me in all kinds of different and unpredictable ways and so it's not worth worrying too much about because it's not you know there was a, a when Jerry Seinfeld had Patton Oswald on comedians when cars getting coffee they had this conversation about raising kids and he's like and they made the joke it's like the thing that they're gonna like complain to the therapist about later on is not something you would have predicted mm -hmm. that you did like the time I lost my temper and screamed at them they're probably fine with but then like something else that I had no idea about is the thing that they're gonna you know mm -hmm. it's just not really that predictable I just feel like and then also kids respond so differently to different things like I mean we even see this in the trauma literature there's they have no idea why some kids who have gone through a trauma do fine mm -hmm. and some kids can never recover mm -hmm. I just think it's just I think there's a lot of unpredictability so but I love having conversations with my kids it's fascinating yeah. to watch them engage when you have those conversations does it ever invoke anything within yourself or maybe change some of these like beliefs or values that you previously held? Yeah, I think when we, I don't know about beliefs and values, like it's not, not that there's not, it hasn't yet disrupted anything. Okay. <laughs> yeah. And so I think I've, I've ended up being a little bit more, um, I probably end up being a little bit more like of an old school style parent than I thought. Not like, certainly not like deep way, but like, I think I'm a little bit more like my parents than I thought I would ever be. I think we all turn into our parents <laughs> eventually. 
Yeah. I don't think that it's necessarily a bad thing. I mean, like, so, so I tell story, a lot of stories about my grandfather and my wife, when I tell her, when I tell these stories, my wife basically thinks it's child abuse. I look upon them really, I look back on these things as like kind of fondly. Um, so for example, when I was growing up, he, he was always big on teaching me the value of a dollar. And so I, I can remember being four and five years old, I guess five. Um, and he would take me out walking along the highways around where we live, picking up cans to recycle, to get the money. And um, I mean, like you can imagine a four-year-old on one side of a highway and yeah. my grandfather on the other. I mean, he would have been arrested today for mm-hmm. doing that. We were just going down, picking up cans. And uh, like one time he, uh, we, we went, he's like, okay, we'll go down and each, go down each side. And then on the way back, we'll switch and we'll check each other's work. And so we go all the way down. Like, and when he's walking really far, we pick up all these cans and then we switch. And then we were going back. And I'm like, oh, you missed one, grandpa. Like, oh, you missed another. And he's like, oh man, I'm not very good at this. And like, basically just tricked me into picking up both sides. <laughs> yeah. And then he, he was like, oh, he, did you get that one over there? And I was on the other side of this wire fence. And I'm like, well, how do I get it? He's like, just lift up the fence. It was an electric fence. And it popped me. And it was kind of close to Christmas. And he, la- he, he told me that my nose was glowing like Rudolph. <laughs> and uh, I couldn't see the end of my nose. And I'm only five, so I believed him. And I just cried all the way home. Oh. <laughs> and, but at the same time, I mean, like, I never doubted that he loved me. And, um, I, you know, I don't feel like it traumatized me. But I also think there's, like, a, a grit involved in it. You know, like, when he, he taught me how to ride a bike. And, um, you know, so I was riding the bike in, you know, classic, you know, classic scene. He lets go of the bike. I'm riding just fine until I realize he's not holding on. Mm-hmm. And I, mm-hmm. I fall and I skip. And I'm crying, we're up the street from the house and I'm crying and you know, I'm like, I don't want to ride a bike anymore. I don't want to ride a bike. I want to go home, I want to go home. And he's like, all right, you can go home. And I start, start walking home. He's like, whoa, where are you going? He's like, I'm going home. He said, I can go home. He's like, you can't go home. You got to ride the bike. <laughs> <laughs> so he made me get back on the bike with bloody knee and ride home. And like, but later that day I was riding a bike with no yeah, problem, you right. know? So I worry a little bit that kids not having that kind of like resilience yeah mm-hmm. or being too much too coddled and right. not having sort of that learning that grit early on yeah and there's a whole literature that's come out in the last 10 years on grit and stuff but i just don't see it enacted that well mm-hmm. you know like i still see us rushing to get kids out of struggling situations or difficulty or you know and um it's hard not to do because and, and like it's hard not to be a helicopter parent mm-hmm. in the society when if you're not, you, you know, you really risk stigma, if not like, you know, legal penalty. I mean, I would mm-hmm. let my, I'd let my eight-year-old go to the playground up the street by herself, but for the fact that I might be arrested for doing it, mm-hmm. you know? Right. I think it's interesting that you said that discussing the, the work in the literature about how we want to kind of like almost be a savior towards people within troubling situations. And I think personally, I've really struggled with this idea of this notion of resilience. I actually quite hate that word um, because I think it's so romanticized. It's like we do romanticize the people that did come from a troubling past and now are out of it. And you're awarding those, those individuals. And, and like you mentioned, it's, we're not really sure why some people are able to, quote unquote, become resilient and some can't find their way out of it. And I think yeah, I just wanted to know your thoughts on that. Yeah, I think it's difficult line to walk. 
you know, my wife and I have these conversations sometimes too, like, because I have this sort of like um, attitude towards the kids a lot. Like, you know, they need to do that themselves. No, I'm not going to bend on that. And, uh, you know, we talk a lot about like choices in like our private life. But then she points out that like, you know, I'm also very sympathetic to the fact that a lot of people don't have choice and that a lot of like people's heart, most of people's hardship is the result of historical systematic inequality and those types of things. And it's a fine line to walk, but I think that you split the difference at, you know, remediating structural inequality, but then also interacting with people as though they're competent mm. agents in the world and, and fostering that agency. We have to address structural inequalities and respond to what those have done to people. But at an, at an interactional level, as individuals, we need to treat them as mm -hmm. potent agents in the world mm -hmm. and work with them as such. And so it seems like a bit of a contradiction. I don't really think it is, but it, it's, it's simply the idea that people can be overwhelmed in their lives, especially over time, especially if it starts when they're kids, by these oppressive social structures. But if you believe in the creative impulses of, of human beings, then, then I think that that's in there. And so what we have to do is take a dual approach. One is systemic. We need to remediate those structural inequalities so that's not happening to people and that people don't have to face that kind of onslaught. And then we also have to work with individuals in a way that um, gives them ownership over their own lives. And so it's, it's a challenging line to walk, especially with kids. But I mean, with my kids, my kids are privileged as hell. And so I'm not really worried about them being oppressed, even though sometimes they act like they are. We really had like such a good conversation with you. Honestly, there are so many things that I didn't know about you and so many things that I like resonated with and related to. So I really appreciate you taking the time out and like talking to us. Um, I guess as a wrap up, we do want to ask mm -hmm. those two questions um, that we ask every guest who comes on. And so the first question would be, who do you want to be? Yeah, you mentioned that we were going to do these at the end. And I've been fearing them ever since, and I kind of probably forget about it. Um, who do I want to be? Um, yeah, I guess this follows on something I said earlier, but um, I suppose I want to just increasingly do the work that I um, think it, think is important, and decreasingly do the things that I think are rewarded. Um, so I want to, you know, I want to I aspire to be more like my mentor Ken that I mentioned earlier and just spend my time doing exactly what I want to do and spend zero time not in, and that doesn't mean like, again, cause I don't believe in work-life balance, as I mentioned, um, that doesn't mean not mm -hmm. working. It just means I want to increasingly focus on the kinds of projects that I think are important and meaningful to me and less on the sort of side projects and things that I feel like are less meaningful. So I want to be someone who is, who is on a daily basis, in most, if not all of my activity value driven. I feel like that, that answers the second question. What do yeah. you want to do? Do you yeah. have anything else you want to add to that? Yeah. Well, so I guess in terms of what I want to do, I want to, I'm doing what I want to do mostly. I mean, I've talked about this with other colleagues with you know, Dr. Brummett, for example, who's our, our new bioethicist. Um, you know, if I won the lottery, if, like if I won the, the mega millions jackpot, which is like over half a billion dollars right now, um, 
I think what I would, one of the things I would do with that money is I would endow myself my own faculty position <laughs> so that I didn't have to worry about anything. And then I would still do most of what I'm doing now. Mm-hmm. I would do, I would not do some of the things I'm doing now, some of the committee work that I just don't care that much about. And I, I don't think is that, um, that accomplishes that much. Um, but I don't think I would teach any less. I think for the most part, I would still do all the same writing projects that I'm, I'm doing now, maybe without a few here and there. Um, I think I'd spend my days doing pretty much what I'm doing now, which is, which is a nice feeling. I mean, it's a privilege, and, but, but a you know, good way to live, I think. I think that's really beautiful. I mean, it is too. But thank you so much. I honestly feel like we could have just kept talking and yeah. I could have picked your brain about yeah, we so could've. many different topics. Well, thanks for having me.